Ephesians 6.14, that's the text for this morning. As a matter of fact, it's Ephesians 6.14a. All we're going to look at this morning is one phrase of Ephesians 6.14. Go ahead and be turning your Bibles there. The story is told of a pastor who at the conclusion of a powerful sermon one Sunday morning emphatically exclaimed, God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And you couldn't hear so much as a page rustle across the room as his authoritative voice rung out amidst the congregation. And in that still quiet moment there following the pastor's words, the hand of a young girl who was sitting in the front row stretched toward the sky. And the pastor paused there in the company of the congregation and acknowledged her question. The young girl didn't have a question, she had a statement. And this was her statement. Pastor, God's word says it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Out of the mouths of babes oftentimes come great truths. David said this in Psalm 119. He said, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. After having discussed the armor of God in general terms in uh, in verses 10 through 13, now Paul undertakes the task of detailing each piece of, of the Christian's armor. Each piece of the armor that we as believers must put on in order to stand against our wicked foe. We spent two weeks, the last two weeks, Talking about our adversary, the devil, our wicked foe. He's cunning, he's crafty, he's powerful, and he's evil. If you can remember back over the last couple of weeks. He is a formidable foe. Friends, while various seasons of our lives may not seem to be, and I will quote, seem to be beset by the terrors of spiritual war, we must never forget that we're engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy with very real and lasting consequences. I think if we were to poll most of us this morning, we would say that not every day feels beset with the reality of spiritual war. But even in light of those easier days, even in light of those days that we don't feel like those fiery darts are, are whizzing at our hearts, we must never forget, never forget that we are engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy with very real and lasting consequences. See, each aspect of this symbolic armor that Paul will list over the next seven weeks as we study it answers a specific dynamic within the Christian life that enables us to stand against spiritual attacks. With that being said, by way of some brief introduction, let me uh, encourage you to stand with us this morning as we read God's Word. Our study will confine us to Ephesians 6.14a, just the first phrase there in Ephesians 6.14, but we're going to read the entire passage this morning uh, so that we get it in all of its context. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 6.14-20, through 20, pens the following words. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. You may be seated. Two main points on your outline this morning. We'll spend the bulk of our time in point number two. Point number one, if you're taking notes, is this. Effective Christian warriors. We not only want to be a Christian warrior, we want to be an effective Christian warrior. And effective Christian warriors are prepared for battle. We've really talked about that some over the last couple of weeks. That preparedness. But I want to re-emphasize that this morning. Effective Christian warriors are prepared for battle. Look at the first two words in Ephesians 6.14. Paul says, Stand therefore. Well, the therefore there in verse, thir- or th- verse 14. What's the question, by the way, we always ask when we see therefore? What's therefore, therefore? Yeah. Therefore is almost exclusively a result word uh, or a because of word. And so when we say therefore, we need to pause uh, for a moment and look backwards at what Paul has already said. In other words, we're being told, Paul says, stand therefore, we're being told to stand firm and to put on the belt of truth because or as a result of the reality that we are engaged in a moment-by-moment combat against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul calls them spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places if you want to glance back at verse 12. So Paul's saying as a result of or because of that moment-by-moment real battle with a real enemy, with real and lasting consequences. Therefore, stand firm. Stand firm. I think the number one reason that so many of us lose those those daily battles with sin and temptation, that we lose those daily battles with our enemy giving in, is simply because we are not prepared for the battle. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the battle? That is at hand. Amidst the pressures of our current world system, I think that many of us have lost our zeal. We've become spiritually apathetic, lethargic, and even at times indifferent to the spiritual battle that is taking place around us. Simply said, many of us have just lost our desire to fight. Make no mistake about it. It's a whole lot easier to jump in the current of this world and float downstream with it. It's easier to sin than it is not to sin. Write that down. It's easier to sin than it is not to sin. It's easier to surrender than it is to fight. Paul knew well the tendency of our fallen flesh. He knew the temptation to give up and to give in. Paul struggled. He wrestled with the old man, uh, which if you go back to our study in Ephesians Chapter 4, Paul told us to put off the old man and to put on the new man that's created after the likeness of our master. It's that that lifestyle daily, putting off and putting on. Paul struggled. Go back and look at Romans chapter 7. He struggled with the flesh. He struggled with sin. Struggled with, with life in this fallen world after conversion. He knew well the temptation to surrender instead of standing strong, fighting hard, pursuing holiness like a valiant warrior. 
See, we need to be reminded that the goal of putting on the armor of God and the goal of being strong in the Lord is that we might stand. That's the goal. Paul says stand. That's the goal. Why? How? Well, we must put on the armor. We must put on the armor. Again, just as put off and put on are often used metaphors by Paul to describe the action of a Christian's life, so the metaphor of standing is often used by Paul. Have you ever considered that as you read Paul's letters? I mean, all throughout his writings, Paul encouraged us to stand or to withstand or to stand firm. Paul's writings are replete with calls for the Christian to stand firm and stand strong. Here are just a couple of those. A familiar text to you would be Galatians 5.1. Paul says, For it is freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be yoked again by the burden of slavery. Stand firm. In Philippians 4.1, he writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. To the Colossians, he said, Stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. To the Thessalonian church, he gave the charge, Stand fast in the Lord. And then, fellas, here's one specifically for you and for I. 1 Corinthians 16.13 If you don't have it memorized, don't lay your head on your pillow tonight without memorizing it. You can do it. Familiar to most of us, Paul said this. He said, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Over and over and over again in Paul's writings, we see the charge to stand, to stand firm, to stand strong, to stand fast, or to withstand our enemy. You see, standing is such a critical posture in the Christian life that Paul repeats that particular charge three times here in Ephesians 6. Let your eyeballs glance back at verse 11. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then again here in verse 14, therefore, stand. In light of the cosmic realities of the battle that we're in, stand. Stand strong. Paul doesn't just repeat words for the sake of wordiness. Paul repeats words for emphasis. And this emphasis demands our attention. Because this emphasis of standing stands in stark contrast to our natural tendency to want to turn back. To to want to be a, a coward in light of the spiritual battle and just turn back to retreat. It's too hard. I don't want to go. The stakes are too high. We also have a natural tendency to to want to be a disorderly soldier. In other words, we want to try to fight on our own terms. We need to realize that there are fixed spiritual rules for this conflict, and we must abide by them. Paul's telling us here in Ephesians chapter 6, fight this way. You don't go out there swinging other instruments. You don't go out there suited up in other armament. There is a fixed set of rules for this conflict, and we must abide by them. So we don't want to be a disorderly soldier, but neither do we want to be a a cowardly soldier. But the the call to stand also is in contrast to our natural tendency just to live a, a carefree life without concern. We might call that spiritual negligence. Just kind of bouncing through life in the current of the world. 
or our natural tendency just to give in to idleness and inactivity. We might call this slothfulness and even a sense of false security. Those are all tendencies that every single one of us, without exception, wrestles with. Paul wants us to be clear that we are not to flee from, we're not to retreat from, take flight from, coward from, resign from, stand down from, yield to, give ground to, surrender to, give up to, or bow out of the battle at hand. And he says, stand. Stand, therefore. The purpose of the armor and the purpose of being strong in the Lord and the strength of his might is that we might stand which is the grand aim of the Christian soldier. I want you to notice something important here. Paul used the word stand in verse 13, and he used the word stand in verse 14. But he used the word stand in those two verses in very different ways. Look at verse 13 for a moment. The stand firm in verse 13, that's at the end of the battle. Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, at the end, when everything is said and done, having done all, to stand, and f- to stand firm. You see, this speaks of the believers standing victorious on the last field of temptation. That's the last battlefield. There we stand untouchable, unblameable, and incorruptible. But now drop down to verse 14. See, verse 13 is a picture of the end of the story, but drop down to verse 14. The word stand here refers not to a warfare finished, but to a warfare just beginning. Paul wants to show us that the soldier must carry himself in a particular way as he goes into battle against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And so he begins by telling us to stand. And so what are we to make of this? If, if the stand firm in verse 13 speaks of the end of the battle. When everything is said and done, you will have stood firm. But here in verse 14, it speaks of standing firm at the beginning of the battle. What can we learn from that, brothers and sisters? Well, I think we must learn that we must stand firm at the beginning and all the way through. We must stand firm at the beginning and all the way through. We, we are... Not thinking properly. If we have the assumption that we will stand firm at the end, if we're not standing firm today. Now, let me qualify that. I'm in no way saying that if a person is truly regenerate, truly converted, has a saving relationship with Christ Jesus, can in any way, shape, or form alter that. I'm just saying there's no guarantee that you will stand firm against sin and temptation tomorrow if you're not first doing it today. It's false thinking, friends. I think a lot of times we, we, we justify our sin by saying, it's just a little bit and it's just today. No one's going to see it. It's not going to hurt anybody. I'll start not sinning tomorrow. Well, let me just take you to a plethora of failed New Year's resolutions. If you had any question as to whether we are strong enough to start tomorrow if we don't start today. Stand firm, stand firm today, Paul says. Effective Christian warriors stand firm. They're prepared for battle. Friends, are you prepared?
Point number two on your outline, and we'll spend the majority of our time here this morning. Effective Christian warriors are properly clothed for battle. Not only are they rightly prepared, not only do they have the right mindset, they're ready for battle, but they're also properly clothed for battle. Let me direct your attention to the back half of the first phrase of Ephesians 6.14. Paul says, having fastened on the belt of truth. Therefore stand, preparedness, having fastened on the belt of truth, proper clothing. Paul's drawing an analogy here from the dress of a soldier, and he's relating it to the wardrobe of the effective Christian life. And the first piece of armament, the first piece of the soldier's armament that Paul directs our attention to is the belt, which though it wasn't technically a part of of a soldier's armor, it was no less important. Needless to say, first century attire looked a whole lot different than the clothing we wear today. Uh, You can't go to the mall, you you can't shop an online retailer and try to find first century attire. And even if you were to find it, or you were to make it yourself, you'd stick out like a sore thumb, a sore thumb in the world in which we live. First century attire was vastly different than what we wear today, obviously. In Paul's day, the common dress was a long flowing tunic. You can think about it like this. If you were to take a sheet, like a twin sheet, and cut a hole in the middle of it for your head and a couple of holes for your arm and then to kind of wrap it around your waist, that would have been the dress of the day. A single piece of fabric with a cutout for the head and the arms. Very loose fitting, which was great for leisure, but, per, but it proved very cumbersome for any type of activity, as you can imagine. As a result, the first thing to be done in preparing for any sport or any active work or any journey or travel, and certainly in the instance of battle, would be to gird up the loins, your Bible might say, or to fasten on the belt, it might be translated. To gird up the loins or to tie up the loose ends of clothing with a large leather belt. When you think belt uh, there in your Bible to fasten on the belt of truth. You don't think about a small belt like this that's looped through belt loops. You think about a large, thick piece of leather that would have wrapped around the front and around towards the lumbar section of your back. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of belt that we're talking about here. Paul says, gird up your loins or fasten your belt. What does he mean there? What's, what's the meaning of of that phrase, fasten the belt or gird up your loins. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 6 for a moment and turn back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. Get those walking fingers ready. Walk in the Word a little bit here together. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. We're asking ourselves, what is the meaning of the language, gird up your loins or fasten your belt? What's Paul trying to communicate here? What's he telling us? He's not just telling us, put a belt on. There's some clear meaning here. Here's what's happening in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. The children of Israel are celebrating the Passover shortly before they are traveling to the promised land. That's, That's the brief, super brief context here. Exodus chapter 12. And this is what God says to them, speaking about the Passover. 
He says, now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What's God saying there, in a nutshell? What is God telling Israel? He's saying, be ready, guys. Be be ready. Get your walking fingers ready. Back to the New Testament, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Verse 35. Jesus, he says, stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action. Anybody have a little number that appears right after that? If so, bounce down to the bottom of your Bible and you'll probably see this. Greek, let your loins stay girded. That's what it means. It's the exact same word that we see here in Ephesians 6.14. Let your dress be ready for action. Stay dressed for action or gird up your loins and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Again, what is Jesus trying to communicate to us here when he says, gird up your loins? Well, it's probably already translated that way for you in your Bible, and it's be ready. Get ready. Same thing in Exodus chapter 12. Eat with haste. Be ready. Gird up your loins. Be ready for action. We're moving on. We're moving out. We're breaking camp, and we're moving forward. That's, that's, that's the meaning of, of fasten your belt or gird up your loins here. To fasten the belt, write this down in your notes, means to be prepared and ready for action. That's what that language means. It means be prepared, be ready for action. Now that we've settled that, let's talk about the meaning of truth. Paul says, fasten your belt or gird up your loins... But fasten the belt of what? Or gird up your loins with what? With the truth, Paul says. Let me ask you this question, friends. How would you define truth? How would you define truth? That's an important question. In a world that swings heavily toward relativism, it's good to have a good definition of truth. Relativism is simply this. What's true to you is true to you. What's true to you is true to you. You just agree to disagree, and you make your own truth. That's relativism. That's the world we live in. A world of relativistic wonder. So it's very important, then, that we have an accurate understanding, and an accurate definition, a right definition, of what truth is. Let me give you one. Simple one-sentence statement here. Truth is the revelation of God found in Christ and revealed in the Scriptures. Truth is the revelation of God found in Jesus Christ, revealed or known in the Scriptures. What's the meaning of truth here in the text? Well, commentators differ. So do a lot of pastors, as a matter of fact. As to whether Paul is talking about truth in the objective sense, that's that's the Word of God. 
or whether Paul is talking about truth in its subjective sense. In other words, the truth as it is worked out of the life of a believer. Is it the objective revealed word of God? Is it doctrine? Is that what Paul's got in mind when he says, let, uh, let the truth be fastened around you like a belt? Or is Paul talking more about the quality of truthfulness as it is expressed or demonstrated through the life of a believer who is informed by the revealed objective word of God? You got me? Shake your head yes or no. Yes. Other churches, not so much, but you, yes, you are bright. It's important that we understand, though, what's Paul talking about here? Because it, it changes some of the interpretation of the text if we, if we look at it as being the objective, revealed Word of God, or if we see it more in its subjective sense as the Christian's truthfulness or the Christian's integrity. You want to know what I think the answer is? Yes. I think the answer is yes. I think that Paul is, is speaking about the objective revealed Word of God. But I think more specifically, Paul is talking about the subjective quality of truthfulness as it's displayed in the life of a believer. Here's why I say both. It's because you can't have one without the other. You can't have a, an individual... A Christian who displays the Christ-like quality of truthfulness, sincerity, and integrity unless they are being informed by the objective, revealed Word of God. Does that make sense? So we acknowledge that all inner truthfulness, all truthfulness that would come out of us as believers must begin with a knowledge of God who is Himself the truth. Right? Right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. The Word became, uh, the, the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. The truth took on our flesh and lived among us. True knowledge of the truth of God always leads to a changed life that is consistent with God's character. In other words, we'll become truthful people, which I think is the emphasis of the text here. As we feast on and, rev- and, and, and revel in the revealed truth of God and His Word. I think the main idea of truth here in verse 14 is that of an attitude and not necessarily the content. Here's one of the reasons I think that. What we don't see in verse 14 is the definite article before truth. Usually if we're speaking of truth in the objective sense, so the revealed truth of God, we would see the definite article before the Greek word aletheia. It would be the truth, the one, as in no other, that one. We don't see that here in Ephesians 6.14. I think that is a good reason for interpreting uh, this text more in line with the quality of truthfulness in the life of a believer. And Paul gives a whole section of the believer's armor to the sword of the Spirit in verse 17. So I don't think Paul's doubling up here. I think Paul is, is definitely got the, the, the objective revealed truth of God in mind because it is the objective revealed truth of God that would cause me as a believer to live a truthful life, a life of integrity, a consistent biblical life. But I think Paul is dealing here uh, more with the attitude and not the content. But again, let me stress, the two are never separated. The two are never separated. 
Paul says, fasten the belt of truth. He's painting the picture of an attitude of seriousness or readiness for battle and commitment to Christ. That's what Paul has in mind here. When you fasten that belt, when you gird up your loins, you're fastening that belt of integrity, commitment, faithfulness, readiness for battle, standing firm. We're breaking camp and moving on. That's the emphasis of the text here in verse 14. With that in mind, let's examine the purpose of the soldier's belt. What we'll do here is we'll try to make some practical applications from the soldier's belt to the Christian life. The purpose of the belt, A on your outline is this, the belt kept the rest of the soldier's armor in its place. That was a major function of the belt. As as Paul looked at the Roman soldier that he was more than likely tethered to on house arrest while he penned this letter, seeing the, the function of the soldier's belt to hold all of the rest of his armor in place, now Paul takes that and he makes a spiritual analogy to the Christian life. Just as the belt kept all the parts of the soldier's armor in their place, preserved in all their firmness and and, and consistent, so to speak. So truth in the life of the believer serves to give consistency to our thinking and to our conduct. The truth, the truth helps us to keep everything in its proper perspective. It gives us direction. The truth defines our purpose. It keeps us from lax views about life, lax views about spirituality, lax views about morality. If you have lax views about life, if you have lax views about spirituality and about morality, then you are an open target for the enemy. You're an open target for lies. Truth makes the soul sincere, firm, constant. You know, it's significant here that Paul places truth at the helm of our spiritual armor. Some commentators, and I have a hard time understanding this, will make the statement that Paul probably had no order in mind here as he is enumerating the armor of God. And I sit here to think to myself about the rest of Paul's writing, and Paul has always been in his writing uh, methodical, systematic, orderly. Why in the world would we think that Paul did not have an order in mind here when, he is, when he's enumerating the, the armor of God for the believer? But you ask yourself, Why does Paul place truth at the helm of our spiritual armor? Why why wasn't it righteousness or faith or even the sword of the Spirit that that led and was listed first? It certainly wasn't because they were less important. I think the reason that Paul speaks of truth first is because we are often tempted to do first and to think second. I think oftentimes we are tempted as believers to do first action and then think. Friends, that gets us in big trouble. If we do not act because of a settled conviction of what God's Word says, then we're acting out of the wrong conviction. Paul wants us to understand that successfully waging war against our powerful, cunning, evil enemy begins with firmly fixing our minds on the revealed truth of the Word of God. Think about that belt, how it wrapped around the soldier's core, his midsection, where all of his vitals were. Now think about the Word of God. 
the objective, revealed Word of God, it must be wrapped around our minds. It must be wrapped around our hearts. It must encompass us. It must be in us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Just as the soldier's belt kept everything else in order, so the truth of God keeps everything in order for the Christian. It tells us our purpose. It gives us direction. It gives us marching orders. It tells us how to go to war and how to fight. A heart and a mind that are not properly informed by the Word of God will quickly be off course. See, without cinching ourselves down tightly with the truth of Scripture, the other weapons of our warfare, they will simply clatter in disarray. The truth keeps everything else in order. Be on your outline. Jot this down. The belt gave the soldier a sense of inner strength and courage. You see, just as the soldier's belt gave him a sense of fortitude and strength when it was tightened, so the Christian is strengthened and infused with confidence when the truth has a firm grasp on him. We should never imagine that we're prepared to withstand the assaults of the powers of darkness if our minds are packed with our own feeble theories and with the speculations of men. It it should not catch us off guard that we will fall in the evil day if our mind is packed with our own feeble thoughts about life and purpose and meaning, purity, holiness, who God is, His nature, His character, His attributes. Nothing but the truth of God, clearly understood and embraced, will enable us to keep our feet for a moment before the celestial potentates that Paul enumerates back in verse 12. Truth alone, abiding in the mind, in the form of divine knowledge, the Word of God, can give strength and confidence in the ordinary conflicts, let alone, much less in the day of evil. The prophet Nahum, don't turn there this time, equated the girding of the loins with strength. He said this, this is Nahum 2.1 if you want to jot the reference down. He wrote, dress for battle. That's probably how it's translated in your Bible. The regional Hebrew is this, gird your loins. Gird your loins and collect all your strength. You can see there that he equated strength with a girding of the loins. Likewise, in Psalm 69, David asked God to deliver him from his enemies by making his enemies weak. You ask, well, what did he ask of God? Well, this is what he asked. Psalm 69, 23. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. There's a sense in which girding your loins all throughout the Scripture has the idea of of standing in strength and then a weakening of the loins to those who fall. See on your outline. The belt helped the soldier be sure-footed on difficult ground. Just as the belt helped the soldier remain steady and sure-footed, so the truth helps us be sure-footed on the battleground of ideas. Friends, can I tell you what we're engaged in? We are engaged in a truth war. Let me recommend a good book by that title. John MacArthur's book, Truth War. 
you don't have that sitting on your bookshelf, grab a copy of that and devour it. Truth war. We need to be sure-footed on the battlefield of ideas. There's an erosion of truth in our world because there's an erosion of authority in our world. People don't want authority. Therefore, people don't want truth. See, the world that we live in presses and encourages an openness of mind, but in all reality, looseness of conviction, especially conviction concerning the Creator and His Word, is a fatal source of weakness. It's popular in our day today to reject moral absolutes. Individuals hate objective black and white truth because they hate authority. If there's a moral truth, then there must be a moral truth giver. If there's a moral truth giver who is also my creator, then I am responsible or I am subject to live under his revealed truth. Therefore, people reject truth. Moral, objective, revealed truth. But ultimately, they're rejecting the truth giver. The world we live in has departed from the truth and ultimately the truth giver. Listen to just some of these references here. Many of these will be familiar to you. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans 2.8, they did not obey the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, they did not believe the truth. 2 Timothy 2, they swerved from the truth. 2 Timothy 3, they opposed the truth. 2 Timothy 4, they turned away from listening to the truth. That's the itching ears verse, by the way. James 3.14, they were false to the truth. Or lied to the truth. And then 1 John 1, 6. They lie and do not practice truth. What are some of the lies that truth has been exchanged for? You ask yourself. What are some of the lies that truth has been exchanged for? And it's possible that we've bitten into some of these hook, line, and sinker, my friends. Well, truth has been exchanged for this thought. If it feels right, if it feels good, or if it's convenient, then it must be true. If it feels good, if it feels right, or if it's convenient, then it must be true. That's, that's feelings-centered, not truth-centered. We want to be very careful there. God has asked us to do things that don't always feel good. But what do we know at the end? They are for our, what? Good. God works everything out for the good of those who love Him. Truth has been exchanged for this thought. If it's popular, it must be true. That's the majority rules. False. Majority doesn't rule. God rules, and he sits on his throne. Truth has been exchanged for this thought. If it's what I want, it must be true. I mean, if God's really created me, and I have these desires in me, and I want this, then my want must determine that what I want is good and true and right. That's called relativism. That's what's true to you is true to you. What's true to me is true to me. We can both disagree. We're both right. A logical fallacy in that argument, by the way. You can't say, if, if I have a feeling in me, or if I want something, then God must have made me with that want. Let me direct your attention to the quote of a well-known man. He said this, he said, If I find within myself desires in which this world cannot satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
So don't try to satisfy those longings in the here and now. You'll end up in the swarm of relativism. How about this one, lastly? What has the lie been exchanged for? Well, this thought. If it's easy to understand, then it must be true. This is the feasible argument. If it's feasible, if it makes sense to me, then it must be true. Reminded of a little verse in the Old Testament where God says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So much higher are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. God is not always easy to understand, but He's always right. And thankfully, Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that He has given us, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we can understand Scripture. We can understand truth. It's not foolishness to us anymore. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, "For for, for for the message of the cross is folly or it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But when God comes in and supernaturally changes a life, removes a heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in a person, now we can understand what we used to not be able to understand. It doesn't mean that we understand God exhaustively, but it means that we understand enough that we can obey him and glorify him. Peter tells us to gird up our minds for action, to be sober in spirit, to fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, just as the flowing garments of the east were to be fastened down so they weren't blown with every wind, so we're to have minds that are surrounded by truth. And as our mind is surrounded or girded or fastened with truth, then we will be truthful people. We will accurately display the character Growing, obviously, in a growing sense, more accurately display the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was himself truth. D on your outline. The soldier's belt kept him free from entanglements. A soldier wouldn't dare go to battle with loose clothing because he would certainly be grabbed and dragged to the ground by his enemy. Think about a wrestler for a moment. Any of you wrestle in high school or college? A few of you, you've probably seen a wrestling match. I mean, think about the the, the garment or the attire of a wrestler. Very tight-fitting. As a matter of fact, they cover their ears. It's because they want to keep them affixed to their head. They don't want them to be pulled off, torn from their bodies. Well, that's kind of the picture here. The belt kept the soldier free from entanglements. He He was not wanting to give the enemy any advantage. And so he was wanting to cinch everything up tightly so that he couldn't be grabbed and dragged to the ground. Remember, uh, just a couple of verses back, Paul used this language. He said, for we wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers and the authorities. That word wrestle, can you remember what I said that it means in the original language? It means hand-to-hand combat. It's exactly what these soldiers would have been engaged in. And so as to not give the enemy any advantage... He would cinch his clothing down tightly that he might be free from entanglements. Likewise, as believers, we want to get rid of anything in our lives that might be a hindrance to the struggle against evil. The writer of Hebrews, a familiar text to most of us probably, says this, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul is essentially saying here, tie down all the loose ends of your life. Tie them all down with the belt of God's truth. Let it be around you and in you, infused in your heart and your mind, that it might come out of you in character. If we're going to stand when the attack of the enemy comes, we must have a firm grasp on spiritual truth. And I would go further and say it must have a firm grasp on you. God's truth will keep us from getting all tangled up in fear and insecurities and doubt, worries and anxieties. We need to tuck all that into the belt of God's truth. Here's a side note. We're going to land the plane here. I'll give you the rest of the fill-ins. The belt not only cinched up the core of this soldier and gave him an inner sense of strength and confidence, but it also protected a soldier's lower region. So, You can think of the belt, a big strap of leather. What would have come down the front of the lap would have been leather straps that functioned something like an apron. It it protected his midsection, but it also protected his thighs. Okay? It ultimately protected his reproductive organs. What does this have to do with us as believers, you ask? Well, I think it has a lot to do with us as believers, since you asked. You see, if Satan can trip you up and entangle you in a web of false teaching, discouragement, defeat, or grievous sin, it will make you a whole lot less effective as a spiritual reproducer. So the belt of truth, it protects our life-giving functions in the Christian life. People oftentimes talk about the fact that uh, on, a, on a deathbed or when an individual is close to the end of their lives, they say some of the most profound things. Well, let me take you back to Jesus' last words. Jesus with his disciples, some of his last words. Jesus with his disciples, he looked them in the eyes and he said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And there's that great promise at the end, and surely I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Let me take you back now. Matthew 4.19, Jesus called his disciples. And he said, come follow me, Matthew 4.19, and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 9.36-38, Jesus looked at those same men who he had called back in Matthew 4.19, and he looked at them, and he said this, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, as a result of that, you pray to me, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest field. To send out laborers into the harvest field. And then if you just keep turning the pages in Matthew, come to Matthew 28, where Jesus essentially looks back at his disciples and says, hey, fellas, guess what? You're the answer to your own prayer. Now, go make disciples of all nations. But if Satan can trip us up in all the entanglements and all the entrapments of sin and its false allurement, you and I will be a whole lot less effective at reproducing our lives spiritually. Let me give you the dangers of a loose belt here, briefly. You can just write these in. They're relatively self-explanatory. If your belt of truth is loose, this is A, you will be quick to question the character of God. If your belt of truth is loose, when the trials and the temptations and the worries and the concerns and the tragedies and the losses of life come, and they will, 
We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. We have the hope of the fact that our Savior stood before us and said, I'm making all things new, but we're not there yet. We know what the end of the story is. But today, in this world, that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, we are beset by many trials and many troubles. And if your belt of truth is loose, then you will be quick in those moments to question the character of God. Are you really there? Are you really being good? Why are you doing this? If you loved me, why? Instead of keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and saying, though it's difficult, yet I will stand. Not because I have the power in me, but because of Christ's power that resides in me. B, if your belt of truth is loose, you'll have a difficult time discerning false teaching. Take you back for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 11 through 14. You may have to turn the page. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, Paul said this. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers leadership in the church. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of all the fullness of Christ, so that, or in order that, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. One of Satan's greatest ways to attack is by way of false teaching. Ask yourself this question. Yes, Satan is a liar. Yes, he is the father of lies. But does he ever speak truth? He does. And he distorts it. And so you've got to be able to discern what some truth mixed with error smells like. You need to have an antenna that is in tune to false doctrine, false teaching. And it comes very subtly. Satan's very crafty, very wily. Why are so many people led astray by false doctrine? Why do millions of people gobble up teachers like Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Jesse Duplantis, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Robert Tilton, Creflo Dollar, and the list could go on and on and on. You want to talk about any of those later? I would love to talk with you. Well, they're led astray, one, because many of them are not genuinely converted in the first place, and that ought to break our hearts, by the way. And secondly, because those who are genuinely converted are so malnourished to the truth that they are troubled to tell or discern the difference. See, if your belt of truth is loose, you'll find yourself swimming deeper and deeper into the waters of this world. What did Paul tell us in Romans 12, he said, don't be conformed, don't be pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed. The word transformed is the word metamorphe. Think of a, of a butterfly there. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do I renew my mind? By filling it with God's word. God's word must be wrapped around my mind and my heart. How does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding. That's intentional language, by the way. It doesn't happen by accident. Guarding. D, if your belt of truth is loose, sin will look more attractive instead of repulsive. Sin will begin to look more attractive. James says this, he says, no one, Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, God, does not tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Sin is enticing. I open saying it's easier to sin than it is not to sin. Sin is enticing. If your belt of truth is loose, sin will look all the more attractive than it does repulsive. But if you guard your life according to the word of God, then the things of earth will lose their luster and they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. E, if your belt of truth is loose, the battle that we're in will seem unreal and the Christian life will feel comfortable. If your belt of truth is not cinched down tight, then the battle that we're in will seem unreal and the Christian life will feel comfortable. Satan would love for you just to move through this life unaware of the battle and therefore unproductive for the cause of Christ. If you're content just to bounce along in the current of this world, jaded by religious activities and the lack of a transformed life, rest assured that Satan will be more than content to let you bounce right along. He won't get in your way. He'd be more than happy for you to just exist and then exit this world in a spiritual slumber. What does a person with a tight belt look like? Well, they use God's truth to measure everything. God's truth is the standard for all of life. Everything else gets measured by it. They seek to bring their hearts and minds into conformity to the truth of God's word. They seek to bring their behavior into conformity with the truth of God's word. In other words, they begin to look more and more like Jesus, who is himself the truth. See, having a firm grasp or a knowledge of the truth, coupled with truthful character, which is a result of having a firm grasp on the truth, that's what holds God's warriors together in the fight. We must submit ourselves to God's truth, to the truth of his word, So that that truth, by result, or as a result, will flow out of our lives in conduct that's marked by truthfulness, sincerity, and integrity. Friends, if you're having trouble in the battle that you're in, it's possible that your belt is too loose. If you're having trouble in this battle, if you're having trouble pursuing holiness, dealing with sin, then it's possible that you're belt is too loose, that you need to cinch it down by spending much time in God's Word. Much time in God's Word results in much resemblance, finish the sentence, to God's Son. 